welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, a.k.a. MMA Lock of the Night, your boy on social media at MMALOTN, and the architect behind the MMA Fight Archive, ensuring that you leave no stone unturned when you're going out there and doing your MMA research. This weekend, we have Octagon 54 coming up, and last weekend, it was a plethora of events. I believe we had over nine events that were taking place next or last weekend that people were able to research on, knowing that they were getting as many fights as possible for every single fighter competing on these upcoming cards or these past cards so that they can make sure they, they get all the researching done possible, whether it's to break down fights handicap fights or even set up a game plan as coaches and fighters utilize this service as well you guys can try it out for free for seven days check the link in the description below once again that is the mma fighter archive check it out and see why we have over 60 subscribers happy pleased and utilizing utilizing this service on a daily basis all right this weekend, we got UFC Vegas 87, headlined by a heavyweight fight between Shamil Gadziev and Jerzinho Rosenstrike. Yes, another mid-tiered heavyweight fight headlining an Apex card, even though we have other solid fights on the card that probably deserve those extra two rounds and they'll probably need those extra two rounds. But for some reason, the UFC loves putting Rosenstrike in these opportunities. This is going to be his fourth Apex main event since the UFC started shifting their shows over there in 2020. I don't understand it. It is what it is. Um, I believe the originally scheduled fight for this card, or at least the one that they were trying to get to main event this card, was Umar Nurmagomedov against Corey Sandhagen. Unfortunately, Sandhagen is still rehabbing from the knee injury that he had going into his last matchup against Rob Font. So he gets stuck with Mr. Jerzinho Rosenstrike once again in the main event. The guy puts out big power, obviously, but we'll obviously break down that fight a little bit deeper later on on this card. But first, as I like to always do, let's recap the last event that we had. Not the greatest here that we had. Uh, we'll quickly go over it here. Um, lock of the night, Brandon Moreno. I had five units at minus 250. He swelled closer to minus 300 come fight time, but it did not end up mattering as a was a very weird approach that Moreno took in that matchup. He uh, was just so married to landing that overhand left or that overhand right. And he landed it a couple times, but it was getting nullified by the amount of activity and output that Brandon Royval was landing throughout that fight. Now, I know that obviously takedowns were a part of the game plan for Moreno, but he didn't seem comfortable enough when he was able to get the fight to the ground, allowing Royval to reverse position or work right back to his feet, which is where they ended up fighting for the majority of that fight. Even though Roy Val only landed 28% of his strikes, it was clear that he was the more active fighter of the two. And I might be a little bit bummed out by the decision there, but I can't be mad at it considering the approach that Moreno took and his lack of ability to adapt and change his game plan on the fly considering what he was being given. So we take an L on the lock of the night play this past weekend. That now drops our lock of the night play record to 9-7 and seven on the year for a 56% hit rate, a far cry from how well we were doing last year, but there is still plenty of time to go on the year, so let's hope we can change things around and get things right back on track for that. The dog of the night, we did pick up a dub there, but it was hella sweaty as we landed plus 120 on Jesus Aguilar uh, to cash for 1.2 units. Uh, it was a close fight again another one that went to the scorecards it seemed like the judges were trying to favor the damage that Aguilar was landing over the control time that Matias Mendonca was getting uh, Mendonca obviously landed some big strikes of his own but it seemed like Aguilar was the one that the judges were seeing landing the more effective damage 
you know, I'm not going to complain about it since I did come out on the right side of this split decision. Um, but it was sweaty. That's for sure. But I'm glad that we got to catch the dog of the night there. Uh, that now brings our dog of the night record to 6-11 and 11 for 35% hit rate. I think we're slightly in the black here in terms of an overall uh, performance. Uh, you guys can obviously check out the top three dog of the night uh, candidates video where I go a little bit more in depth on the stats of that record and the performance of my dog of the night plays for 2024. So make sure you guys check that out on Wednesday. Um, and let's just quickly cover the rest of the plays. So we'll go from top to bottom here. We had 1.65 units on Yair Rodriguez at minus 165. Great start for him. Possible 10-8 in that first round with how close he was to coming to finishing uh, Ortega. But it seemed like he had some sort of uh, uh, mental block there. And Ortega was able to win the second and third rounds. Uh, Rodriguez was unable to stop the takedowns. It seemed like he almost stopped trying and caring at a certain point after he was unable to get Ortega out of there. So very concerning for him there. Uh, not the type of performance I was expecting from Rodriguez so we take an L there we did end up hitting on the chalky Daniel Zahuber who probably should have ended up being the lock of the night play anyway we knew it was going to be close early as two judges did give Prado the first round but I knew that Zahuber's discipline and technical striking advantage especially with that jab from distance was going to be his key to victory in this matchup and he goes out there and batters Prado over the second and third rounds trying to chase the finish in certain spots as well but was content with getting his hand raised by decision so he cashed one unit on him there uh, bad play on Sam Hughes all around I was a little bit too uh, excited with seeing her have a, a metrics advantage in terms of, like her size. Um, I thought that would play a little bit more of a factor into it, especially her process in terms of crashing the pocket and trying to get this into the clinch realm she was unable to get anywhere close to a double leg or a single leg takedown she always tried going for body lock takedowns and that's where it seemed like Yadagui was far superior to her in terms of strength and then obviously at range that was Yadagui's bread and butter that's where she was going to have her most success and she was luckily able to stay there for the majority of that matchup so we take a loss on Sam Hughes there bad call I'll admit it right off from the jump here uh, Chris Duncan one year at plus 145 crash but solid start you know if he stuck with the striking there rather than trying to enforce the grappling situation he probably could have ended up on the winning end here by hurting Manuel Torres uh, but Torres goes out there survives the early onslaught gets it back in his own right I believe this fight only lasted over a minute and a half um, and Torres was able to get the submission there so we take a loss on Chris Duncan um, and then finally we had a chalky parlay that cashed with relative ease here uh, actually no sorry not relative ease as Felipe Dos Santos very questionable decision there in his favor um, I could see it ever so slightly in favor of Dos Santos because of the damage he was landing compared to just the control and takedowns of Altamirano I thought third round was clear Dos Santos I thought first round was clear Altamirano but then in that third round I think that the or sorry the second round I think the judges were seeing that Dos Santos was trying to land more damage especially in the latter half of that round and I think that's what they ended up scoring over what Altamirano was doing so he cashes the first leg and then Edgar Chavez goes out there has a solid start and then eventually sinks in the triangle choke halfway through that first round that cashes our chalky parlay for one unit at minus 129 all in all minus 5.45 units not a good run there uh even on uh, the Friday I think it was a very unfortunate LFA that we had yeah LFA did not go to plan there uh cage warriors we were up a unit there uh the lock of the night play actually ended up getting voided because both legs of the lock of the night play actually ended up getting canceled on weigh-in day and 
and Fight Day. Uh, and then PFL, um, the lock of the night play was a chalky parlay there, but with uh, J- Jason Jackson and... Um, Jason Jackson and Vadim Nemkov hitting relatively easily. We cashed that. ACA, we only ended up having a dog play on there, which cashed plus 140 on Grigor Metevosian, I believe his name was. Uh, I think he got the first round stoppage there, so good win for us there, but not the best weekend. So we want to bounce back. We want to get back to how we were doing in January, which was a very stellar month for us. Let's try to get back on track, and hopefully March is far nicer to us than February was. Uh, Lockheed Two-Step also did end up crashing this weekend. That was the first loss that the Lockheed Two-Step took on the year. We are now 5-1 and one on the Lockheed Two-Step, firmly entrenched in profit. So, and then the Lockheed Trinity go, falls to 3-3 three and three as it ends up losing. I will be dropping it on the Patreon page nice and early this week for anybody that wants to jump onto it. Otherwise, Thursday, it will drop to the public for free. And just like last week, I'm expecting the line to be significantly worse on Thursday than it is when I drop it for the Patreon folks on Monday. So if you want it nice and early, check out the Lock of the Night MMA LOTN Patreon page. Link for that in the description below. And the last plug before we get into the breakdowns here, GodzillaWins.com. Not only just for your MMA coverage, but for all team sports and all other sports that you can bet on. We got a great... A group of writers and podcasters on there so make sure you guys go check out godzillawins.com wednesdays we drop my main event article uh which cashed this past week and even though i took brandon Mor- Roy- brandon moreno as a lock of the night play i did tip the over three and a half at minus 145 as my godzilla wins tip there so we were able to cash on there and then the three uh best money line spots i think we ended up going two and one or one and two but been doing pretty well uh for 2024 on those spots as well so if you guys want to check those out i usually drop the links in the description below uh once they get posted to the website otherwise just go to the website check it out yourself godzillawins.com all right let's get into this nine fight card now there is a fight that is tentatively scheduled for this week and we're supposed to have Raul Rosas Jr. versus Ricky Tercios which went down last week uh, or it was supposed to go down last weekend at uh, UFC Mexico but it got cancelled on fight day you know a couple hours before the fight was actually supposed to take place uh, and they're saying that it's rescheduled for this weekend but Ricky Tercios just recently came out saying fake news he hasn't signed a bout agreement or anything like that so there may be a uh, uh, a hold up a road bump um in that fight actually taking place this weekend so i'm not going to cover that on this since it's not officially announced it's not on the ufc stats page ricky tercios is saying it's not happening so i'm not going to waste my time with that if you do want to know how i feel about that matchup go back and watch last weekend's card where i have it time stamped um uh, on the ufc uh mexico uh mma lawcast episode check it out on there if you want to hear my thoughts on that if they do end up uh getting it righted and it end up ends up going down this weekend you guys can just go back and watch last weekend's or last week's podcast to get my full card breakdown on that nothing's going to change in terms of my thoughts on the fight so make sure you guys go check that out all right let's get into this nine fight card first fight up we got lightweights going out of here as we have Abdul Karim Al-Sarwali going up against Loic Radzabov. 
Uh, we got minus 160 on Al Sawadi and plus 140 on Rajabov. We'll start off on the Al Sawadi side, who obviously pulled off a big upset victory in his contender series matchup against George Hardwick uh, a couple months back. I believe that was closer to August or September. Um, but a lot of people counted Al Sawadi out there. Uh, a lot of people, you know, were all enthralled by the Cage Warriors champion George Hardwick, who was a very solid striker, a very solid fighter, who probably even deserves to be in the UFC to begin with. Uh, but but Al-Sawadi was a Fury FC champion who had some decent experience under his belt as well. But he showcased that he was able to still stick to a st- solid striking game plan, even though grappling is normally his path to victory in most matchups. We saw him use a lot of lateral movement, and that caused Hardwick a lot of issues in terms of tracking down Al-Sawadi and trying to get off on his own offense. Al-Sawadi went one of six on takedown, so it was obvious that he wanted to get his grappling going. But once that was failing, he saw that it was better to just keep moving around at distance, crash the pocket every so often, and get up on the numbers and eventually get his hand raised by decision. He is a BJJ brown belt that normally looks to take fights to the ground, smashes opponents from on top either with TKO or by controlling them over 15 or 25 minutes and getting his hand raised on the scorecards. In fights that are high activity and high output, he normally starts to slow down later in fights, but his durability has been good enough and his cardio has been good enough to just keep him in fights late so that he can still go out there and win decisions. He's on a five-fight winning streak since moving stateside after going on a two-fight losing streak on the regional scene in the Middle East. Now on stateside, training with Fortis MMA, honing in on his skills, getting better every time out. I think we're going to continue to see the best version of him, especially with him only being 28 years old. His opponent this weekend, Loic Radzabov, is 1-1 one one in the UFC now. And that first win came on short notice when he got signed to the UFC and took on Esteban Rebovics. His grappling paid off for him in the first two rounds of that matchup. But it was clear that he was starting to slow down as well, whether it's his usual cardio issues or the fact that he took that fight on short notice. He was still able to survive the hard-hitting style of Rebovics and win that matchup on the scorecards. His next matchup, he had to take a very tough fight against Matias Rombeski, and Rombeski was able to just keep him on the back foot, chop away at his legs, land big shots on the feet, and then eventually finish him in that second round. Radzibov is a solid fighter, a guy that has been in the PFL finals twice, but has fallen short on those finals as well to Natan Schultz, as well as Haush Manfio. Uh, Radzibov is a guy that obviously likes to lean on his grappling, look to take opponents to the ground, and either finish them with a submission from that top position, or grind them out and win a decision it's just when he's unable to dictate the pace of fights things start to go sour for him because he's unable to keep up his cardio over 15 minutes now this is a matchup between both guys that deal with some cardio issues late in matchups but it's going to come down to who's going to be able to dictate the pace here and i believe that rides above with a slight height advantage here um and a slight striking advantage, pure striking advantage. And what I mean by that is he's a little bit cleaner down the pipe. Whereas um, Al-Sawadi, who does not normally fight the way that he did in his last matchup, usually wings his shots, try to crash the pocket, and try to get in on the hips of his opponents, looking to take them to the mat. But I think Radzibov might have a pure wrestling advantage in this matchup, which should allow him to dictate where this fight takes place. I don't know if that's going to be with him either trying to land takedowns of his own, getting the clinch going and pushing Al-Sawadi up against the cage, 
or even just using pitter-patter shots from distance and maintaining that range, landing the straighter shots down the pipe. I get it. Al-Sawadi had a phenomenal performance last time around, but let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. And this is coming from a guy that took him as a big underdog last time around. But I think that Radzibov has far better experience against legitimate opponents. Uh, and I think he has all the chops here to go out there and pull off the upset and uh, start off the night with an underdog getting the dub here. So I'm going to go uh, Radzibov to outpoint uh, and put together a better optical performance for the judges to give the fight in his favor. Give me Radzibov and Radzibov by decision. Next up, we got a middleweight matchup between Christian Leroy Duncan and Claudio Hibero in the middleweight division. Obviously, heavy chalk here on Duncan at minus 280. He's going up against Claudio Hibero, who comes in at plus 240. Now, Duncan is coming off of his second UFC victory, but first legitimate one, considering the first one was a TKO via injury over Dusko Todorovic. Uh, but he had a solid showing against Tululian, but he showcased some maturity in that matchup. He didn't just go out there and try to land his flashy, spinning, flying shit from distance, but he tried to engage in the clinch where he was able able to hurt Tululian a few times and really wear on Tululian so that he could take advantage of him in the later rounds of this fight. I think it was the second round that he ended up getting the finish in. But we saw when he goes up against technically better strikers who are better at maintaining the range and making Duncan pay for some of his unorthodox maneuvers, uh, he ends up coming up on the short end of the stick like he did against Armin Petrosian. But only 28 years old and seeing what it's like to face some of the higher levels uh, that are going to be across from him in the UFC, I think we saw some good things from Duncan last time around. Now his opponent this weekend, Claudio Hibero, comes in with a 1-2 UFC record, most recently getting knocked out by Roman Kopilov mid last year. Kopil or Hibero, similar to Duncan, is a guy that likes to utilize power punching styles with unorthodox movements, whether it's flying stuff, spinning stuff. The guy just likes to go out there and be a human highlight reel. He has big power in his shots, which is how he became so successful on the regional scene. But you can see in fights against Abdul Razak Al Hassan and Roman Kopilov that when he's extended in fights against better technical opponents, he more than likely will end up coming up on the short end of the stick. His lone victory in the UFC against is against Joseph Holmes, who I don't believe is that great of a fighter. And even though that finish came in the second round, I think it was more so with the fact that Holmes was unsuccessful with his takedown approach there and started to break and eventually allowed Hibero to run away with that matchup and get that second round finish. However, I think in this matchup, we're going to see Duncan control the majority of it. He is the bigger stronger fighter in my opinion and I think he might look to go the same route that he did against Julian where he was able to uh, clinch him up against the cage wear on him land some knees land some elbows some dirty boxing and wear on Hibero so the power agility and explosiveness of Hibero starts to deflate very quickly this will allow Duncan to start free flowing in the second or third rounds which is where I think he'll eventually be able to get the finish now the over one and a half at plus 100 is something that's a little bit in interesting to me and intriguing to me because if we we do truly have a mature Duncan coming into this matchup it's not going to be the Duncan that we saw on the regional scene that was going out there and just getting these quick finishes yes some opponents on the regional scene tried to take him down and we saw fights going to deeper waters but normally he is a guy if he's able to have his way he likes to go out there and just free flow and try to knock people out quickly but in this matchup he's having a guy that's going to try to do the same thing to him if he can just slow it down do what he did in the Dennis Tullulian fight he should be able to get this fight uh, onto his terms in the second round and likely find the finish closer to the ending of that frame as well. So the over one and a half is something that I am considering, especially at plus money, but I do think it ends up still with Duncan getting his hand raised by knockout. 
Moving over to the bantamweight division, we have Eamon Zahabi coming in at plus 500. He goes up against scorching hot prospect Javid Bashrat, who comes in at minus 700. Now, Eamon Zahabi is currently riding a three-fight winning streak, two of those coming by knockout. He was on a tough run back in 2018 and 2019 where he was on a two-fight losing streak. Took off a bunch of time and now comes back with a 3-0 run. Again, looking decent in most of those fights, especially with him getting the early knockouts in a couple of them as well. Uh, he's 36 years old, but he is a far cry from the super um, you know, hot prospect that we expected him to be when he first came into the UFC due to his relation to his brother, Faraz Sahabi, who's obviously famed Canadian coach of the TriStar Gym and of George St. Pierre, one of the greatest fighters of all time. Sahabi is a slick striker who also has some sneaky submissions up his sleeve, but I think he does his best work when he can get into his flow state with his striking but with him being at 36 years old with him you know not being super active over the last couple of years I think we'll see him come up short against the guy in Javid Basharat who I believe is probably one of the best if not the best prospect at 135 pounds I get it there's still Tatsuro Taira and I believe Rinya Nakamura out there as well so I don't want to get too far ahead of myself but Basharat has shown almost no issues or no flaws in his game since entering the UFC off of the contender series. He's gone out there and gone to a decision over his last three opponents. Um, his actual last opponent was Victor Henry in a fight that it seemed like he was really starting to take over. And then there was an unfortunate nutshot that caused that fight to be uh, stopped and ruled a no contest. Uh, Bashrat is a smooth striker. This guy operates from distance very well and throws combinations, utilizes his footwork and distance management so well that opponents find it very hard to land on him cleanly. And... He's starting to show off some grappling chops as well, something that he has fully been capable of, but he's been so comfortable in the striking realm that he has chosen to strike with his opponents more often than not. But it's clear that since he's moved stateside with his brother Farid, they've been teaming up with the guys over there at Extreme Couture, teaming up with Jake Shields and those guys, and really rounding out their grappling game, which is a very solid um, addition to their skill set, especially with their ability to mass takedown so well behind the uh, striking that they're already so feared about or feared for. In this matchup against Zahabi, I think we'll see Zahabi's Cinderella run come to an end. I think Basharat is a little bit slicker on the feet. I think his striking defense is good enough to stay away from the power and the deceiving power that Zahabi possesses. And I think I wouldn't even be surprised if you see Basharat look to take this fight to the ground just to keep Zahabi on his toes. Uh, obviously minus 700 a little bit tough to get behind if you were able to parlay him a couple days ago when he was a little bit closer to minus 500 maybe you get a little bit of better value there but I just think he's so much better and so much closer to his prime than Eamon Zahabi and even though Zahabi has some decent experience under his belt Bashrat is one of the best prospects if not the best prospect in the lower weight classes in the UFC right now so I understand the line I won't hate on anybody trying to parlay him in this spot either. Uh, I think he wins by decision, but that decision prop is probably going to be hella chalky. It, obviously, props aren't out yet as I record this on Monday, uh, but usually that's his path to victory in fights, and I expect him to do that once again this weekend over Eamon Zahabi. All right, let's move over to, over to the flyweight division where we got Matt Schnell coming in at plus 270. He goes up against another hot prospect in the flyweight division, Steve Ersig, who comes in at minus 320. Now, starting off on the Matt Schnell side of things here, uh, he's looking to rebound from his knockout loss to Matthias Nikolaou from late 2022. Now, 
uh, Schnell decided that he wanted to take a little bit of time off after the birth of his second child uh, in 2023, but he was scheduled for fights in June and November. In June, he was forced to pull out of a fight because he had a hand injury, and then in November, he pulled out due to a staph infection that he had to deal with that he said got pretty bad. But now here he is back in early 2024 trying to get back on the winning track, and he's faced some very tough opponents over his last several fights. You know, his losses have come to current champion Alexandre Pantoja uh recent challenger for the title Brandon Royval and a perennial top five flyweight in Matthias Nikolaus so we can't blame him too much and who can forget his crazy comeback victory over Suma Darji where he was nearly finished numerous times early in that fight but was able to pull off the submission in that second round after Suma Darji just completely emptied his gas tank trying to finish Matt Snell Snell has a very slick and aggressive jiu-jitsu game when he gets his uh, back on the mat and in the striking realm he's quite technical with the striking approach but it's just been his lack of durability that has caused him issues time and time again even in fights that he wins he finds himself in trouble more often than not because opponents are able to sneak through that guard of his and land cleanly on him and put him on his butt it just does not seem like he can take a punch as well as he could from earlier on in his career and that's going to cause him some issues i think again this weekend steve ersig is 11 and 1 and is on a pretty solid winning streak right now and probably one of the best prospects to come out of australia in a long time Steve Ersig, uh, BJJ Black Belt, uh, is a national Muay Thai champion as well down there in Australia. And the flack that I've given him in the past is the lack of legitimate competition he's been facing on the regional scene in Australia. But that's not his fault. You know, he was stuck in Australia. The regional talent, they're usually not the greatest to hone guys and their skill sets coming into the UFC. But Ersig has shown some great stuff. You know, obviously that short notice uh, victory over David Dvorak, great win for him there. Uh, the victory over Alessandro Costa, uh, he had a solid first round where he hurt Costa numerous times. He got hurt himself in the second round, but was able to bounce back and get that fight into a uh, comfortable and safe position where he was able to just battle back into the fight and then win that third round, utilizing his fight IQ and his clinch to really just slow down Costa and keep him away from us- utilizing his big power. Ursig is very calm, very disciplined, and very smart with his striking approach as he's able to just stalk his opponents and then land those shots down the pipe where he's able to put them on their butt and hurt them very badly once fights get to the ground he's very aggressive with his own bjj black belt which is why he often goes out there and gets submissions in his fights he only has one tko on his record because the majority of his fights end up on the mat where he's able to control his opponents and eventually find submissions this guy's very deceiving in terms of the way he looks i get it he looks like steve Carell. he looks like michael scott but he goes out there and he gets the job done he's only 28 years old he's very skilled and i think it's going to be his technical striking approach that's going to get him the victory here over matt Schnell. now Schnell can be competitive and i've seen some guy some guys kind of mock the minus 320 line on steve ersig and yes he hasn't faced the highest level of competition so it's tough to see how good this guy's actually going to be but Matt Schnell is the perfect matchup for him. I wanted to make a case to take a shot on Matt Schnell at plus 270, but I just can't. Ersig is too clean, too precise with the striking, and Schnell just doesn't have the reaction time required to stop the striking of Ersig here. I fully see Ersig landing the shot straight down the pipe. I see him following up with some submissions. I hope we see him go out there and just try to get the TKO victory because Schnell has found a squirmyish way to get out of bad spots uh, when guys are looking for submissions. So just put a stamp on it. I think Steve Versig hopefully goes out there and gets the club and drum rather than the club and sub. 
minus 320 again it's hard to convince people on that spot so i'm going to try to hone in on the inside the distance prop i was hoping we would get plus money on the under two and a half but the total is currently set at one and a half and the under one and a half is plus 110 which doesn't give me high hopes for the under two and a half if we ever get an alternate line there or even the fight doesn't go to decision but i think ursig is the spot here and i think he's going to land cleanly on schnell eventually drop him and eventually find the finish i'll be looking for ursig inside the distance all right, uh, like I said, this is where the Rosas Jr. and Tercios fight is scheduled to take place at this spot in the card. Nothing official as of yet. But if you want to know what my thoughts are on that fight, go check last week's breakdown where I have the full breakdown for that fight on the UFC Mexico City uh, show. All right, let's get into this bantamweight banger here where we have Umar Nurmagomedov, 16-0, coming in at minus 1050. Yes, you heard that, minus 1050. Going up against UFC newcomer Bexat Almakan, who comes in with a 17-1 record and is a steeped underdog here at plus 725. Never thought I'd say those numbers for a guy that's 17-1, but... Umar Nurmagomedov, undefeated, looked tremendous last time around as he knocked out Hani Barcelos in the first round of their fight. That fight took place in January of 2023, so it's been a long time since we've seen Nurmagomedov get inside the cage. One had to do with the fact that he's been unable to get guys that are willing to sign on the dotted line to fight him. And secondly, he suffered an injury uh, against uh, in a fight that he was supposed to have against Corey Sandhagen uh, in August. That put him on the shelf for a while. And then after that, he was unable to find opponents. That's why the UFC had to go out and find a guy like Al Makan who has a 17-1 record, who's a regional champion, to sign on the dotted line and, and you know, jump ahead of a lot of guys and fight somebody as skilled as Nurmagomedov. Now, people want to say, you know, why didn't they just put the Sanhagen and Nurmagomedov fight together again? But Sanhagen, if you guys remember, was injured going into the Rob Font fight. Rob Font stepping in on short notice for Nurmagomedov that night. Uh, and that's why we got that boring-ish performance from Sanhagen as he utilizes wrestling so that he can just keep his knee as healthy as possible over those 25 minutes but Sanhagen is still on the mend Nurmagomedov does not want to wait they had penciled in Nurmagomedov versus Sanhagen for this card Sanhagen was unable to make the date but now Nurmagomedov just wants to stay active just wants to keep his feet wet under him and he has to take on Alma Khan here quickly talking about Nurmagomedov obviously he has the wrestling the last name should tell you that uh, but it's his ability to mix his striking that makes him so special. Uh, you know, he throws a lot of kicks from distance. Um, you know, the creativity with the striking, especially the combination he landed on Barcelos to put him out was a thing of beauty. Uh, he's just so well-rounded every in every part of MMA. And he's only 28 years old. Hopefully we get to see him a little bit more active. Last year when I talked about him, I uh, was saying, you know, he might get a title shot by the ending of the year. He was just unfortunately unable to stay active enough to, to secure that. Uh, but maybe this is the year. Maybe this is the year he finally gets his title shot and he can strap that gold belt around his waist. But very talented fighter all around. Haven't really seen many, many issues from him. I think one flaw that I picked up on from earlier in his career is that he's not super active with the striking, but he seems to be shoring that aspect up and being more comfortable with throwing his kicks and his punches down the pipe. His opponent this weekend, Bexai Almakan, uh, he's on a, I believe it's a nine-fight winning streak right now. His last loss came back in 2019 where he hurt his opponent very early 
emptied the gas tank trying to finish him, was unable to do so, and his opponent was able to come back in the second round, take advantage of the exhausted Alma Khan and find a club and sub victory of his own. But since then, Alma Khan has uh, very much mature, matured and very much improved with his striking, his discipline, and his skill set all around. Uh, he's a solid striker, uh, great timing on his takedowns. I have some questions about his ability to hold his opponents down for long periods of time. Um, he is most comfortable on the mat, but in the striking realm, he is definitely improving. He's throwing in combinations, throwing head kicks, getting some knockouts as well, which is definitely helping his confidence. But I think he's being thrown to the Sharks a little bit too soon. Now I get it. That's probably why he got signed to the UFC in the first place. Because nobody else wanted to fight Nurmagomedov. So you got a regional 17-1 guy that is probably just getting into the UFC in terms of a hazing type of uh, method or approach here by taking on Nurmagomedov. But keep an eye on Almakan As he continues to gain more experience in the UFC against higher levels of competition, this might be a guy that we eventually see fight Nurmagomedov once again, right? Both these guys, 28 and 26 years old. They're still young enough that they can build up the momentum to potentially fight each other once again. But Almakan needs a little bit more experience against UFC-level talent before we you know, pick him as an underdog here against Nurmagomedov. I would never suggest parlaying a minus 1050, um, especially against somebody you know like Alma Khan, who seems to have legitimate uh, skills of his own and has the potential ever so slightly to pull off the upset. Um, so I'd rather just pass on this fight as a whole and maybe look at the method of victory here that could potentially get us uh, a little extra cash in the pocket. And I'm thinking the overs and possibly even... Fight goes to decision and Ramaga made of by decision. I get it. Alma Khan's sole loss came by submission, but I think he is a much more disciplined and better version of himself than he was five years ago. So I'm going to take Nurmaga Madov and Nurmaga Madov by decision. I'll see what that prop is if we're getting solid enough plus money on it. Maybe I'll take a shot there. The over one and a half is currently at minus 200, so not enough you know, uh, meat on the bone there to really take a shot. But I'm thinking Nurmaga Madov by decision, probably the best way to go for this matchup. I probably talked about this fight way too much to still just go out there and pick up the chalkiest favorite on the card, but it is what it is. All right, next up, middleweights. We got minus 400, <clears throat> excuse me, minus 400 on Eric Anders coming in against Jamie Pickett, who comes in at plus 330. I never thought I'd see minus 400 again on Eric Anders, but sometimes stylistic matchups call for him to be a heavy favorite, and this seems like one of those spots. He's currently uh, two and three over his last five fights. Last time around, getting out worked by Marc-Andre Barrio in June. Um, it was a weird fight, as I thought Barrio would be the one that was on the front foot, but it was Anders that was the one walking him down, uh, trying to engage in the clinch. But ultimately, Barrio was the one landing more significant strikes, uh, landing more damage, and ultimately got his hand raised on the scorecards. Anders is starting to slow down, right? This guy's 36 years old. Um, it's starting to show that the physicality and strength that he originally brought to the table and why he was su successful early in his career is starting to wither away as well. But he is matched up against another guy that likes to go out there and utilize his physicality to pick up his wins. We got Jamie Pickett, who's 2-6 and six in the UFC, currently riding a four-fight losing streak, but still managing to keep on to a UFC roster spot. I think more so... Considering that he took that shot against Bo Nickel, UFC is probably rewarding him and giving him another shot here, uh, even though he lost against Josh Frem last time around as well. 
like I said, both guys usually rely on their physicality and strength to overwhelm their opponents in the clinch, get them to the ground and do some good work from that top position, or utilize their punching power and explosivity to try to knock their opponents out. Where I think Anders is the guy that will likely look better here. He should be able to get this fight into his realm of, you know, forcing the action, pushing, pick it up against the cage, maybe even landing some takedowns. But minus 400 is not a number that I really want to trust Anders with. I expect this fight to be closely competitive in certain spots, but I think that we see this fight go to the judges' scorecards. Overs is what I'm looking at. Fight goes to decision is what I'm looking at here, but I think Anders is probably the spot that ends up getting his hand raised on the scorecards. All right, big-time flyweight fight here in terms of ranked flyweights trying to get closer to a title shot, but most importantly, the return of Alex Perez. He's currently on a two-fight losing streak and comes in as a plus-280 underdog. He goes up against the phenom, the young prospect, the 23-year-old Mohamed Mokhaev, who comes in at minus 340. Now, Perez, two-fight losing streak, uh, the second last of which was a quick finish from now-champion Alexandre Pantoja, but it's really been Perez's battle with himself in terms of trying to get to the cage. This guy, I don't know how many times he's been canceled in terms of his fights actually taking place. Uh, there was one fight where... You know, he missed weight and it was canceled. And then there was another fight where his opponent missed weight and Perez canceled the fight because he didn't want to take that fight. Um, very weird circumstances all around for Perez. Uh, a guy that was once seen as a highly touted prospect for this flyweight division, right? He had a solid wrestling game of his own. He had an improving striking game, especially with the calf kicks that he was able to establish in his fights, most recently against Juicier Formiga. But it seems like a thing of the past now. He is a guy that the MMA world is just so... Uh, um, just just over now right like he never makes it to the cage the joke is whether he's actually going to fight or not um i'm sure the ufc has a backup ready to go from a if that's what ends up happening but you can't count prez completely out he's 31 years old he's still a skilled fighter and now a guy that's been you know the center of ridicule from the mma fan base a guy that a lot of people have been continuously counting out he might be the most dangerous version of himself coming out there and trying to prove these people wrong and remind them why he was such a highly touted prospect to begin with. So I don't want to just automatically go out there and fade the guy, especially with um, Mokhaev being such a heavy favorite here. Now let's quickly talk about Mokhaev here, who's uh, obviously won every single fight that he's had since coming into the UFC, 10-0 record now. But the last fight is the intriguing one. He got a third-round submission victory over Tim Elliott. I believe it's now three straight fights in a row where he's gotten a third-round submission victory. But the last one was intriguing because I believe Mohaev was down on all the scorecards going into that final round. So if that fight had gone another minute and a half to two minutes, we might not see Mohaev with an undefeated record still. Tim Elliott would have gotten his hand raised by decision. But there's not a lot of fighters like Elliott. There's not a lot of guys that cause the scrambles and frustrations that he normally does because of how wild and unorthodox he is. And I don't know if there's another fighter that can reproduce a Tim Elliott-type performance. Mokhaev, we know he is so dominant in the grappling realm. He's so good at finding submission opportunities and taking that on home with him. His striking is a little bit more flash than substance at this point in time. And I think a lot of it has to do with him trying to close that pocket with something spectacular to keep his opponent on the defensive so that he can change levels and get fights to the ground. But he's still developing. He's still young. That first loss is around the corner. Is it this weekend? Against the unsuspecting Alex Perez? I don't think so. Uh, I'm not fully sold on that, but I'm not willing to go out there and trust this youngster at minus 340 against a guy that could end up being his toughest test to date. 
Browns still take Mikhaev. I'm thinking this fight goes to the scorecards over two and a half. But I think Mikhaev will be the one landing the better damage, getting some more control time. But this will be closer than the odds actually indicate. All right, moving over to the co-main event of the night. We got a light heavyweight showcase belt here in, uh, like I said, light heavyweight division. Minus 270 on Vitor Petrino going up against plus 230 Tyson Pedro. Now, Petrino undefeated prospect 10-0. And I think he is one of the dark horses to go out there and get into the top five and possibly find himself in a title fight uh, within the next year and a half to two years, depending on how things shake out at the top of the division. So much cluster, so much uncertainty up there but we know Alex Perez is taking on Jamal Hill uh, at UFC 300 let's see how that one shakes out but Petrino is a guy that is improving every single time out I tried to fade him against Anton Tricali in his UFC debut citing that I thought that Tricali's grapple heavy approach would allow him to grind out and wear down the gas tank of Petrino but Petrino showcased that he can keep his explosivity solid enough through 15 minutes that guys will find it very difficult to keep him in a bad position it almost reminds me of Yasmin Yaragui to an extent and the fact that if anybody ever tries to put her in a bad position she's just able to explode or just aggro out of those spots and get back to distance where she feels most comfortable that's the case with Petrino the guy very rarely gets stuck in bad positions because he has such good awareness in terms of what it looks like optically being on his back or being up against the cage and he just does what he needs to do to get back out into space or reverse the position and look like he's the one in the dominant position. He's already a great striker with a ton of punching power to try to knock and fin- knock out his opponents and finish them, but he's been improving his grappling over his last couple of fights and trying to showcase it to the world. The Marcin Pracnio fight continuous takedowns and eventually leading to a third round submission victory that night Modestus Bukowski has tried to get it going there but he thought that probably going the striking route was going to be the best way for him to get the win and he was able to get that second round knockout there this guy's very dangerous and if he continues to improve his grappling game this guy's going to be one tough cookie to crack his opponent this week in Tyson Pedro is a guy that was in similar position to Vitor Petrino, seemed as a highly touted prospect, but after losing to Mauricio Shogun, who uh, took off an extended layoff, he had a ton of injuries that he had to come back from, and then he finally made his return to two easy matchups in Ike Villanueva and Harry Hunsucker. He was able to finish both of those guys, and his confidence was definitely back. Unfortunately for him, he came up short against Modestus Bukowskis, who was returning to the UFC on short notice to fight Tyson Pedro, and that just continued to show us that Pedro may not be the guy that a lot of people expected him to be. He picked up a big win over Anton Tricali, uh late last year where he was able to get that first round knockout, but I'm still not sold on what Pedro brings to the table. He's a guy that has some slick submissions up his sleeve if he looks to take fights to the ground. And he has some decent striking as well if he wants to try to keep uh, getting into the flow state from distance. But this is not a fight I believe he can get into that flow state. As Petrino will clearly be landing the bigger, better strikes, I think Petrino will be able to dictate and control where this fight takes place. And I just don't see where Pedro really wins this fight. Like, he could look to take it to the ground and try to get his BJJ going. But we've seen Petrino clearly improve that aspect of his game, clearly be very difficult to take down, and even be harder to hold down. So I think Petrino wins this fight pretty much anywhere it goes. And I think that this is a fight that we'll see him actually go out there and get another finish. Likely, probably by by the second round as well. I like Petrino here, and I like him to win this fight by knockout. All right, heavyweights here. Probably one of the more binary fights that we have on the card. We got Jerzinho Rosenstreich coming in at plus 125. He takes on prospect Shamil Gadziev, who comes in at minus 145. 
Now, it's tough to say prospect when you have a 34-year-old in Gadziev, but considering he's only one fight into his UFC career thus far, I kind of get it. Now, striker versus grappler, right? We'll start off on the striker side, who's come up short in three of his last five fights, mainly two grapplers. Obviously, Curtis Blades was able to get him down continuously and grind him out and win that fight on the scorecards. Uh, we saw Jelton Almeida get him to the ground with relative ease and find that submission to get him out of there. And then Alexander Volkov, Volkov was able to just knock him out on the feet. Rosenstrike is a guy that is dangerous with his power, as is with almost any heavyweight. But he struggles with guys when they try to get fights to the ground. And that's where he's going to run into trouble here. I, I I don't know what it is that the public is seeing in Rosenstrike and his ability to, to win this fight and why this fight is so close on the odds. Um, I get it. He's dangerous with his power. If he lands, probably over. Sure, Gadziev, um, you know, hasn't faced the toughest competition. Maybe that's what they're trying to see here. But Gadziev is so strong when he gets a hold of his opponents that he should be able to get this fight to the ground with relative ease. Also, his growing confidence in his striking, just as he showed in his last fight against Martin Budai, that could allow him to, you know, maybe strike with Rosenstrike ever so slightly. And Rosenstrike is a guy that is normally very gun-shy. If he's being put on his back foot, maybe he shells up a little bit and that gives the opening that Gadziev needs to get this fight to the ground. But I really believe once this fight does hit the ground, Gadziev's strength will be too much for Rosenstrike to deal with on the ground. That will allow, allow Gadziev to get to the dominant position that he needs and to rain down the big shots to either get the TKO or open up the submission opportunity to get a choke as well. Again, heavyweights. Knockouts are always possible. But I feel there's such a discrepancy here, especially when this fight hits the mat, which I have no doubt that I will within the first minute and a half to two minutes of this fight. And I think that Gadziev has educated himself enough in the striking realm to be safe enough and stay away from the big wide shots that Rosenstrike is going to throw his way. I get it. People love to read into the striking background of Rosenstrike, but you know he's knocking out Augusto Sakai, who has been somewhat fragile sometimes. Chris, uh, Chris Dacus, who has been clearly fragile throughout his career Gadziev this guy can take a shot in my opinion this guy is somebody that can maintain the range well enough until he can find the opportunity to change levels and get this fight to the ground and get that finish within the first round or so in this matchup so I'm going to go Gadziev here minus 145 in my opinion gift of a line we might not be able to get him at this line uh, and, and I'll say this I did go against him last time around against Martin Budai. I thought Budai would showcase a better striking game, but he couldn't get off on anything if Gadziev, as Gadziev was able to keep him on the back foot the entire time and just wear on him with punches and output and then eventually putting him away early in that second round. That showed me a lot about Gadziev in that matchup. In my opinion, I thought that fight was going to be tougher for him, or I think that fight is going to be tougher for him than this Rosenstrike fight will be. Rosenstrike might have better one-punch knockout power than Budai, but I think it's going to get harder and harder for him to land that big shot. And I don't even think this fight goes past the fourth or fifth minute, if I'm being honest. I'm going to take Godziev, Godziev round one, TKO or sub, whatever it is. I think he wins this fight relatively easily. There you guys go. Nine fights broken down in the potential 10th. The Raul Rosas Jr., Ricky Tercios fight. If you're still looking for that breakdown, check out last week's podcast where I broke it down in full. Otherwise, we only have nine fights scheduled for this weekend. Let's see if they can put together a couple more. But... I always like to drop my podcast on Mondays. So here you guys go. Appreciate all the love. Appreciate all the support. Let's get back on the winning track this week. Got a ton of other great content coming this week. I'll be doing a regional breakdown as well of Octagon 54 for the public. So make sure you guys stay tuned for that. I believe I'll drop that on Wednesday or Thursday. 
And then all the other great segments that you guys have known to love. Top three lock of the night candidates, top three dog of the night candidates, free parlay, quick picks, and the top three best prop bets as well. I'll see you guys again tomorrow. Peace. Last thing.